it's my great honor and pleasure to speak with Dr. David Graham, who has been a professor of medicine and molecular virology and microbiology since 1983 at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Dr. Graham is an icon in the field of medicine and has been placed in the top 1% of researchers in our field, is highly sought after for his expertise. Dr. Graham has written the book on H. pylori and is in fact the inventor of the urea breath test, which is widely used to diagnose H. pylori infection. And some of us refer to him as the walking encyclopedia of knowledge. And it's been a pleasure and delight working with him in the past 25 years. He is also my mentor, colleague, and friend. Uh, Dr. Graham, welcome to the podcast. Um, tell us about H. pylori infection. Well, H. H pylori is the name of a bacteria, Helicobacter pylori, and it's called that because it's got a helical shape. And it was unknown until 1980s, late 80s. But before that time, uh, we knew that we had, people had stomach trouble. And in fact, the most common cancer in people was gastric cancer. And peptic ulcer disease was incredibly common. In fact, it was, it was so common that people thought that you got it from working and all kinds of myths about successful people in peptic ulcer disease because it was so common. In fact, in 1970s, uh, there were about 140,000 ulcer operations a year. Uh, and only in 1970 did lung cancer exceed stomach cancer as a problem. And then this bacterium was discovered. And then it was discovered that it actually was the cause of those ulcers and gastric cancer. Uh, and so the focus was, and the idea was, if we could eliminate this bacteria, we could largely eliminate gastric cancer and peptic ulcer disease and a lot of stomach complaints. And so that's been the focus about this disease is how to identify it, how best to get rid of it, and ask questions about uh, should we be searching for it in the population. Is it more common in certain parts of the world? Well, in, until recently, in, in the site of 1900, it was common everywhere. Uh, basically, except for a few isolated pockets that we don't understand, like in Malaysia, almost everyone had this, which made these diseases very, very, very common. Uh, and, and it's still very, very common in other parts of the world. It turned out that when we got clean running water, and in-house in plumbing and sanitation that the disease began to decrease. And so it decreased first, of course, in the people who had those things. And so the rich people lost it quicker than the people that were less advantaged. But it, by, say, 1980, when it was first discovered, about 60% of people living in the United States still were infected. Now, if you were a black or Hispanic or an immigrant, uh, it may have been 90% at that time. 
because they hadn't had that advantage that uh, that one population had had. So does it spread through drinking water, or or is it mostly person to person? Well, most places in the world, it's person to person. It. Uh, that doesn't mean that if you live in an area with bad water and bad sanitation that you won't uh, get it from the water supply. But it, it's rare in, in almost every country now because almost every country has a good water supply. But normally you get it in childhood. And and so the key is that the mother or mother and father will have it and, and they will infect one of their children and when the children get it, they have a brief illness, a stomach ache and pain and maybe nausea and vomiting and diarrhea. Uh, and that lasts for a very short time, less than a week. And then it goes away and the person becomes normal again. But during that time, the vomitus, for example, is just full of the bacteria. And the, and the stool is full of the bacteria. So imagine you know, how messy little kids are. Uh, that's, that was probably the biggest area of transmission. Other ways you can imagine would be, let's take uh, uh, before people had Gerber's baby food. And so you're going to feed the baby and you have, today we're having fish. Well, uh, you're not going to feed the baby fish bone. And so mothers would often pre-masticate her, you know, to the, the first to make sure there were no bones and then give it to the baby. Well, they were also giving them helicobacter. So there are a lot of ways that we uh, had for the bacteria to spread and it took advantage of all of those. Do you think today fecal oral spread is the main way that H. pylori gets transmitted? Uh, well, we don't know. Uh, I think probably yes. It's still transmitted primarily to children uh, and uh, it can be from either the mother or the father and so they have it and uh, we, when we looked at things like sexual practices and kissing and there's no evidence of transmission in those ways so it, it seems like fecal oral is the, is the common way. And now you know even though we've established the link between H. pylori and ulcer disease People still come to the office and say, oh, I'm very stressed and my ulcers keep coming back. And uh, the whole paradigm has changed now because H. pylori is more of an infectious disease as opposed to something you got just because of stress or what you ate. Uh, do you think that uh, uh, lifestyle and smoking still causes, uh, has a role in ulcer disease or is it mostly H. pylori? Well, I, it's hard to know. I think, though, that uh, if, you, if you increase acid secretion, and smoking does that, and stress does that, and you have the infection, uh, you're probably more likely to get a symptomatic uh, disease. Um, so, yes, they probably still have some relationship, but not causative per se, but, uh, but acting in addition. Now, other things cause ulcers, for example, as we know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like Advil. Uh, and so, I mean, it's not all ulcers are going to be due to helicobacter. But when ulcers were, 10% of our population got ulcers. Uh, and that was, you know, phenomenally frequent disease where that was due to this. And, and those spread in families. 
And so now we say, we really want to get rid of this infection. Well, why? Because then we can get rid of ourselves of this big cancer. It's still very, very common. In fact, it's very, very common in populations in America. In our city county hospital, we still see every week a new gastric cancer. And that's what we saw 30 years ago. Uh, but they're coming in from elsewhere. These are the immigrants that are coming across the border that are infected and bringing what they still have here. Uh, they're not necessarily spreading it to us, but we don't know that. I mean, who works in all of the restaurants, etc. So we, we don't know how, uh, if that's a problem, but we do know that we can cure this infection. And once you're cured as an adult, you're unlikely to get reinfected. Okay, so moving on to the more serious consequences from chronic H. pylori infection, gastric cancer is a lethal condition. And when you see somebody with gastric cancer, presumably you want to look for H. pylori. Uh, are there any particular strains of H. pylori that are more likely to give you gastric cancer? Because not everybody with, with H. pylori has gastric cancer. Uh, yes, there's some strains of H. pylori that are more uh, virulent and more likely to cause more damage and therefore more likely to cause gastric cancer. But that's only about half of the story because if you go to areas where those strains are not common, you may still have very high gas rates of gastric cancer. So we're talking about a small advantage or disadvantage. It's really, as you get infected in childhood, and, and to get the gastric cancer, you need to pretty much destroy the stomach lining. And that takes a while. Uh, and so if you have episodes where your st stomach doesn't make acid or because you got sick or febrile, uh, then the bacteria gets an advantage. And the more of those advantages uh, that you, it gets, the more likely it's to damage your whole stomach and then raise your risk of gastric cancer. Uh, this is why in, in Japan, for example, and, and now in other countries, Korea, and even starting in China, they are starting to investigate the patients, the people, the normal healthy people, and find those with helicobacter and eradicating the infection. So if that process is starting, even if it's asymptomatic, they can prevent it. And therefore, when they get older, they, their risk of gastric cancer will plummet uh, and, and disappear from the population. And that's what happened here. Um, okay. Now, people talk about maltomas as a possible complication of long-term infection. Are they much more common than uh, gastric cancers because they seem to be more treatable? Well, uh, maltoma is a, a lymphoma, a lymphoid cancer uh, of a t particular type of cell. And uh, it's malt means mucosal associated, so it's on a surface, a mucosal surface. And this, this is caused by helicobacter when it's in the stomach. And actually, if you eradicate the helicobacter, it's one of the cancers that will usually go away. Uh, but it's not a common disease. Uh, it's a pretty rare phenomenon. Just you're lucky if that's the, the type of cancer you get because uh, if you're treated, uh, uh, you cannot usually expect that will go away. Okay. So when you find somebody with a serious consequence, such as a maltoma or 
a gastric cancer who have H. pylori. Are you concerned about their family members? Uh, how do you screen them and do you want to screen them? Well, we, we've become broader than that. In the past, we said, yes, if you have a peptic ulcer or if you have uh, a gastric cancer, we know that everyone in your family had the same environment, and so they're all probably infected, and we should test them all so they don't get these outcomes. Uh, then we recognize that if you had an H. pylori infection, that meant that your whole family probably have H. pylori infections. And now we're saying when you, when you find a case, you should test all the, the people living in that household, first-degree relatives, uh, and any time that you find this infection, you should eliminate it because then you've eliminated their risk for having these serious outcomes later. Now, you, in fact, invented the breath test for H. pylori. Uh, what is your first go-to test uh, when, you, when you're screening family members for H. pylori? Well, we'd like to use a non-invasive test. There's no reason to do something that's potentially harmful for someone who may not have anything. And so we have several choices. We have Now we have the urea breath test, which is a simple test that is positive, means that you probably have the infection. And the other test we have is called a stool antigen test, because everything in the stomach has to go out to the stool. And so you can do a, a test on the stool to find out if the organism is present. And then we've moved just this year to the next step, and that is we can do a stool antigen test that also uh, can tell us if the, not only if the infection is there, but what antibiotics the organism is susceptible to. And so once we start using that routinely, it'll be actually much easier to decide on what is the best therapy. Uh, this is using molecular techniques. It's called next generation sequencing. It's what everybody's been using to test the microbiomes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they can now look at the stool, identify if the helicobacter are there by the presence of their genes, and then identify the susceptibility to antibiotics because the, for them to destroy the antibiotics and become resistant, they usually have changes in their genes. And so you can focus the test on that. So it's a very kind of neat thing, not very expensive. Uh, and uh, I think we'll be going that direction over time. Now, I see a lot of doctors still ordering a blood antibody test for H. pylori. What are the pros and cons of that? Well, the blood test uh, was one of the initial good tests because it told us that you were infected. But when, when people became, uh, infections became less, then the false positives became a problem particularly because if you ever were infected, the test can stay positive for life. And so finally the government decided that the test had become uh, too insensitive. And in fact, now frequently they won't pay uh, for that. With, so your insurance won't pay for it and the government won't pay for it. Uh, and doctors shouldn't be ordering it. But, you know, doctors learn what to do early on in their training and, and often don't change. Uh, so you get a lot of patients with vague symptoms of dyspepsia. Uh, what percentage of these are due to H. pylori infection? That's a good question because <clears throat> some of them uh, will uh, be due to the H. pylori infection. So example, if you take people that come in and say, I have indigestion and nothing specific. And so you ask, well, maybe you have an ulcer 
Uh, and if they have an ulcer and H. pylori, that's usually the cause. If they don't have an ulcer and have H. pylori, uh, they have damage to the stomach, but it's probably not causing the symptoms. Uh, if you cure their infection, only about 10% will get completely well. But that, that 100% you treated won't get peptic ulcer, it won't get gastric cancer. So it's a benefit because those are diseases they could still get in the future or spread to other people. So it's worth testing, it's worth treating, but you, we tell them that there's only a small chance or a reasonable chance that this will actually uh, cure your symptoms. How important is it to test for cure? Because I see a lot of doctors give the treatment and then call it quits after that. Uh, testing for cure has become incredibly important because as with time and the use of antibiotics and misuse of antibiotics, the organism has become increasingly resistant. And so our cure rates are not 100%. Uh, a good cure rate is 90%. But some of the therapies that have been widely used and are still widely used have cure rates of 60 and 70%. So to treat someone and, and, and send them home thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm safe now, and they're not is, is a bad thing. So we believe everybody that after treatment needs a test of cure. We do that four or more weeks after therapy. And if they pass that test, then they're highly, highly likely that they're cured. Given that this disease is so common, the infection with H. pylori, what are your, um, what do you think about the likelihood of a vaccine in the future that might eradicate it? H. pylori infection? Well, vaccine is something we've all kind of dreamed for. I mean, if you look at worldwide, uh, for example, in, in most developing countries or even newly advanced countries, everyone's infected. You know, 70, 80, 90 percent. For in India, Mexico, everybody, everybody comes across the border, this immigrant in this country uh, is, is probably infected. And so, you know, we can't go treat all of China and all of India. Uh, and so we would really love to have a vaccine. We'd really love to have a vaccine that's also therapeutic and not only prevented the infection, but treated the infection. Uh, we've been working on that for a long time. There's actually almost no federal money that goes into that because this is not an American problem. But uh, we've not been unsuccessful to date. So we'd really love to have one, and I think it's important that we do have one eventually, but um, we haven't tumbled on how to make it yet. How do you see the treatment of H. pylori changing in the coming decades, given that there perhaps is more, there are certainly more effective acid suppressive drugs coming down the pipeline, but there's also increasing antibiotic resistance. So where are we going with treatment? Well, a treatment is once we now we now have available now means this year, so it's it, it's not everyone doesn't have it available. A susceptibility testing, so we make the diagnosis. We can know what antibiotics work and which ones don't work. So to be able to precisely choose antibiotics should remarkably improve our cure rate and the ability to suppress acid. Uh, and so acid makes it hard for antibiotics to work. So if you can suppress the stomach from making any acid, then it becomes much easier to cure the infection. 
and, and that's also kind of on the cusp. So we, when we have those two parts active, uh, we should be able to cure most of the infections the first time. So the outlook is good for H. pylori infection? The outlook uh, going forward is good, uh, but the, the organism, we've been there before, and, and the organisms turned out to be more clever than we thought, and, and, and doctors less clever than we hoped. So uh, yes, uh, when, within someone's lifetime, this infection uh, should be gone from our country, at least from developed countries and working on underdeveloped countries. I think that the, the patients need to be educated better because uh, doctors tend to do what they learned in medical school. And this has been a rapidly changing field. So it's probably good for the, when, when the doctor tells the patient what he or she's going to do, that they look it up and see whether or not that's really what they're doing today. For most people undergoing uh, upper endoscopy, how important is it that they routinely, routinely checked for H. pylori infection? Well, it really depends on why they're undergoing upper endoscopy, but my philosophy is that's an expensive procedure. It's got minimal but some risk, and therefore you should get all the information that you can at that time. So it, it really, every time that they go there, they should confirm that the patient does not have an infection. Of course, if they didn't have an infection last time, they don't need to do it again. But uh, if, they, if they're unknown as far as their status, uh, they should test that. That's been a very helpful and insightful discussion on H. pylori infection. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you.